Welcome to Follow to Lead, where we discover how to listen for and follow God's call so that we might lead others to God. Our shared stories of inspiration from religious leaders and those active in the educational ministry of the church can help you know better how God is calling you and the role passionate Catholic education plays in spreading His message of faith, hope, and love. Now please welcome the hosts of Follow to Lead, Father Randy Sly and Kyle Pietrantonio. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Christ the teacher, teach us to listen. Teach us to do the deep listening to the sounds of our soul, waiting to hear your voice calling us to cast out deeper, to become fishers of men and women, shepherds of souls, to follow your will in order to lead others to the truth, beauty, and goodness only you can offer. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome to Follow to Lead, a journey twice a month into the world of Catholic education and our faith, exploring what it means to follow God in order to lead others to Him. I'm Kyle Pietrantonio, your co-host. And I'm Father Randy Sly, and today we will be talking with Jason Shanks, who's the president of our Sunday Visitor Institute for Catholic Innovation in Huntington, Indiana, a suburb of Fort Wayne. And Jason brings a wealth of background and experience to his role as president of the OSV Institute, overseeing the annual OSV Challenge and OSV Talks, both that were launched to ignite creativity and entrepreneurship in the Catholic Church. He holds a vision for renewal through innovation that stems from his conviction that the church is evergreen from generation to generation and must be represented afresh and anew to today's modern world. Now, prior to his role with uh, OSV, Jason served as the chief executive officer of Catholic Charities of Southeast Michigan. And in addition, he served as the secretariat leader of evangelization and parish for the Diocese of Toledo and was the founder of Catholic Youth Summer Camp. Prior to this, he spent eight years as the business and pastoral leader for a local parish. Jason has a bachelor's degree in education from Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, a master's degree in theology from the Pontifical College Josephinum in Columbus, Ohio, and a master's degree in nonprofit administration from Mendoza College of Business of Notre Dame in uh, Notre Dame, Indiana. Now, Jason resides uh, in Fort Wayne with his wife, Melissa, and their five children. Jason, welcome to the program. Wow, it's so it's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. And when I hear that bio, it just means I've been around a lot a long time doing a lot of different things. So <laughs> I got a good marketing team who makes this sound all good, but it's so good to be with you guys. I'm I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, Jason, we're glad you could be with us. Uh, we uh, often like to begin our conversations with a bit about our guests' upbringing. Uh, so if you could share just a bit about that uh, to get us started. Yeah, so I was uh, I was raised in Columbus, Ohio, with a mom and a dad. My dad, it was a former Catholic uh, who had left the church, and my mother was a Methodist who I think was um, her faith was really more about Robert Schuler on Sundays, and so we did a lot of Robert Schuler watching. Um, so I am a convert uh, to the Catholic faith. I was baptized Protestant, although I will say that my Parents were very Christian, lived out their Christian faith uh, in the home, mainly through activity and social service and work. But my dad was an avid Bible reader who, I think as he explained things to me, even though he had left the Catholic Church, explained things in a very Catholic way at times, which made my conversion easier. 
one of two children. So I was not in a Catholic school, was in a public school, did not really know much about the Catholic education, Catholic schools, religious education until actually leading it later in life, uh, working at a, a parish in Columbus, Ohio. I went to uh, Miami University, as Father said, and was involved in a campus ministry there called Campus Crusade for Christ. Today, it's known as Crew. I think they changed it because of the word crusade uh, for, for obvious reasons, but got really involved with, uh, I would say, Christian apologetics was really what attracted me, this idea that, oh, we can explain these things and, and the resurrection is real and, uh, you know, Lord, liar, lunatic. And, and so I just really got attracted to Christian apologetics and got involved in Bible studies. And it was through them, actually, through Bible studies that I started frankly, asking lots of questions of, of the faith, of the Protestant faith, of the evangelical uh, world. And to my shock and awe and surprise, uh, became Catholic, um, which was never what I wanted to become and was a surprise. But it was a long investigation, a long look back at why did we as Protestants leave the church, which I didn't agree with a lot of the reasons that you know, today we have a lot of straw man arguments all the way back to the early church and the early church where I discovered, to my surprise, the Catholic church and, and, and frankly, dis- discovered the Eucharist and the real presence of the Eucharist. From there, it took me about um, a year or two before I actually joined the Catholic church. So for a long time, I sat and watched and listened and prayed. Then, of course, went through RCAME and uh, eventually be- became Catholic like father, you know, joined the the Catholic Church, and it is just the true blessing of my life. So it's it's funny to be leading an organization for Catholic innovation and to be a part of our Sunday Visitor and and doing what I'm doing with bishops and other things because it's um, I would never have planned this in, in a million years uh, in my life. We share that common heritage of being converts, uh, Jason. What was the tipping point? Do you think where you kind of moved from exploration to really? commitment and bringing yourself more directly into the Catholic faith. I do think it was for me, John chapter six, father. I mean, I had gone through faith alone, Bible alone, grace alone. I came to understand, frankly, with straw men arguments about purgatory and all these, you know, saints and praying to saints. And, you know, I went through all the typical sort of issues where I think I eventually intellectually said, I've got to have it was the Eucharist. It was this understanding that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood and the repetition of it in John six and people leaving and saying, oh, that's hard teaching that I think my eyes were opened, if you will, that mm-hmm. things started making sense. And that I knew I'm going to be Catholic. I, I've got to have the Eucharist. But again, even intellectually doing that took me a while from a experience. I mean, I went through about a whole nother year in college, not going through RCA, but going to mass every day before I got home, back home to Columbus, Ohio, and joined the RCA program. And I wouldn't trade that sort of waiting period, that engagement period, if you will, for the world. And it does strike me, Father, that we just heard in Scripture this week, this idea of the bridegroom and the bride and, and this sort of this idea of this marriage motif. And for me, it was that was very, very real. I mean, it was like, this is what I, Jesus really, truly present, coming to me as the bridegroom in the Eucharist. And Intellectually, I'm saying yes, but there was sort of like a betrothal period or an engagement period before mm-hmm. I could actually receive him on, uh, you know, at Easter time. And, you know, as the, the larger church goes through, you know, is, you know, 
in terms of the United States, this Eucharistic revival. I'm very excited for us to sort of, as a church at large, return to our Eucharistic fervor and devotion. And it's uh, been a very important part of my conversion and journey. Yeah, you and I share that common uh, conviction on the John chapter six being a linchpin for really trying to understand how things uh, need to come together in terms of the Eucharistic portion of our faith. And uh, boy, I'm, I'm excited to hear of your journey. And we do share some of that common thinking yeah. in that respect. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely the key. And it's really, frankly, the key to almost understanding Old Testament and scripture and, and a lot of things. So I would encourage your listeners, if you have, it's been a while since you've really engaged with John 6, you should, you should go and listen and look at it. And yeah, and uh, maybe increase your own knowledge, understanding, and Eucharistic devotion. It was a few years ago that Pew came out that a lot of Catholics don't fully have an understanding of the real presence of Jesus Christ, really and truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. We need to return to that. We need to we need to study study up our faith, especially on our on the sacrament of the uh, Blessed Sacrament, the Eucharist. Jason, your undergraduate degree uh, was in education. Did you discern teaching uh, following your your undergraduate work? Yeah, so I come from a family of teachers. My my mother uh, is taught. I think she's still teaching. I think she's into like forty years of teaching. My sister is a teacher. Uh, so when I went to Miami University, I have a degree in secondary education. So at that time, I don't know how it's done today. Is uh, was sixth grade on up, and my background is in. Uh, was in social studies, political science, geography, and I taught for three years. So before I went to the Josephinum, uh, as I was becoming Catholic, going through RCA, taught for for three years in a sort of an urban environment uh, in Columbus, Ohio. I really enjoyed it, and frankly, probably taught a lot differently than most. Uh, I taught history backwards, which was interesting and fun, as well as I was pretty. I felt very convicted. Maybe it was the crusader in me, but you know, I feel like we send missionaries to China, we send them to all over the world. I could be a missionary in the public school. And so we talked a lot about truth and relativism and moral teaching. I mean, this was during the Clinton years and a variety of other issues that were emerging. So we took a lot of things on head on and had a lot of interesting religious faith discussions, even in the public setting which was fascinating. But at that time, also, I started getting involved in youth ministry, given my background. And actually, I was doing catechesis of youth in a youth ministry before I was Catholic, uh, which, was, which was interesting. They, yeah. uh, the youth, they, they invited me to teach the Catholic faith to the kids. And technically, I yet wasn't Catholic, which was a, was a story in and of itself. But then that's what later led me to start Catholic Youth Summer Camp, which is now Damascus. We started with 60 kids uh, in Columbus, Ohio, and we did it actually because we, there was a, a really solid evangelical Protestant camp that a lot of the kids were going to. When I was in Crusade, I spent a summer in Canacook, Canacomo, which, you know, in the, in the Ozark Mountains and worked there. And so we really thought about how can we take those high adventure experiences that these kids want to go to, but infuse it with the Catholic programming, the Catholic faith. With the sacraments, instead of doing the altar call, let's do the let's do confession. So we started that, I believe, in the year 2000, and it's going strong now. Now they're they've got a facility, and and um, some of the kids that were involved with it in high school 
took on the leadership and ownership and are running it today. And it's, it's doing fantastic and doing great work. And a lot of people go and do that in the summer times. Yeah, that all came during that same sort of teaching experience and, and thinking about not only teaching in the classroom, but teaching in the youth ministry sort of context. Is that how you got into uh, parish work? Was just kind of that youth ex- experience kind of leading you in that direction? Yeah. So if I were to look at sort of where did ministry and the Catholic Church start for me, it started in youth ministry. And as I talk a lot about innovation, frankly, I think some of the most innovative people in the Catholic space is probably your youth minister and your Catholic teacher, because they've got to keep these kids engaged, right? And so they're always thinking of new strategies, new approaches. They're tacking, they're iterating, they're changing, they're using data in terms of grading. So when you think about ministry and innovation, it it sort of starts with those that are working with our children and for good reason. So my background started, I think, in the, to your point, father, in the youth ministry space. When I left the, when I left education, I, I felt calling to be a priest is, is what happened. And I went to the Josephina and started pre-theology for a year. And I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved going to mass every day. I loved the studies. I loved the prayer. But for whatever reason, I no longer desired to be a priest. And so after a year in, I, I left and I was talking to my spiritual director who who was working in a parish at the time and had an opening at his parish. And he said, why don't you come be the pastoral minister for me? And so I did that, but the Josephinum allowed me to stay on as a commuter to continue to finish my master's degree. And I did that for many years, um, which was sort of unique in a certain sense to allow a former seminarian to do that, but that was wonderful. And so when in my parish responsibilities, I did marriage preparation. I did RCIA. I did most of the ministries, liturgy, um, but also served as the DRE uh, within the in the, the school. And this was many years ago, and there was a lot to say on the state of the school and the state of religious education at that time, uh, and, a, and a lot of uh, wounds as I was this energetic and young convert who was excited to get the the fullness of the faith and in in, in its expression in the Catholic in the Catholic school and some of the barriers and challenges uh, to doing that were were rather large. I mean, I took my I took my lumps and learned a lot from it. But the, I did. Then I stayed in that parish for about eight years. And in eight years' time, my roles just expanded as they do in parish life. And at one point, included becoming the business manager. So in addition to all the ministries. Uh, I was doing the business side of it. And after I finished my master's in theology, I determined what would really be helpful if was I had a degree in business, an MBA type of degree, and went to the University of Notre Dame through a um, summer program and got a second master's in nonprofit administration. Um, so I do have the sort of dual background, which frankly, and the reason I bring that up is to say it's really led me to think a lot about what I would argue is we need an infusion of an entrepreneurial mindset with pastoral ministry. And I think in my own life, these two degrees has been more than helpful and something that I'm, I'm, do, I'm working to try to bring forward in the work that I do now. Jason, that's a good segue uh, into a little bit more about OSV, our Sunday visitor. I, I became acquainted with OSV by virtue of the offertory envelopes uh, in my right, uh, right. younger days, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, being raised in the church. But now, you know, OSV is is doing so much more uh, for the church, including this 
wonderful apostolate, the OSV Institute, which might be less familiar with some of our listeners. So could you share a bit about the genesis of the OSV Institute and its focus in ministry right now? You are exactly right. Most people know Our Sunday Visitor, which a few years ago we rebranded OSV. So for your listeners, when I refer to OSV, it's Our Sunday Visitor. They know it of one of two things, envelopes or the paper. And the paper is what got started in 1912. You know, what is that? Almost 110 years ago now that a priest started tackling anti-Catholicism issues uh, that was prevalent at the time. So this was six months before the Titanic hit a paper started called Arsene Visitor. And it was, it, it was one of the first of its kind. So today we think about all the diocesan papers and newspapers. This was sort of the first Catholic paper uh, that just spread like wildfire and, and went out. And that's what got it to start. They sold to Father Noel at the time, a printing house for a dollar and off and running. And then that turned into pamphlets, books, other print materials. But about three years after that paper, uh, offertory envelopes, which was prevalent in the Protestant community, I didn't realize, but the Catholics were selling pews. You might th- see that uh-huh. now when you have like church raffles and things, they'll do a pew, but that was pretty big back in the day. So he started these envelopes. We're the leading producer of offertory envelopes in the world now, right? And that's, uh, and, and I understand that's going down and online giving, we have that. So OSV has consulting services, capital campaign services, strategic planning services, envelopes, books, print. And it's this large products and services organization that's been around for over 100 years that's doing a lot of great things. And it's a nonprofit. The dollars that are generated are then used by the Institute. And traditionally, for the last 100 years, those dollars have been used in the form of grants. So postulates, schools, parishes, dioceses in the past would get a grant for X, Y, and Z, depending on what they applied for. And in the last 100 years, OSV has given away about $90 million in grant activity. So when you buy a product at OSV, not only are you gaining from the product or the service, but those dollars are being repurposed to help further the church, champion the church, and and help it to grow. I'm not going to tell you who, but a lot of leading ministries that people would be familiar with in one form or another probably had an OSV in its background. So about three years ago, um, OSV started looking at that grant activity, wanted to get more purposeful, intentional, and strategic with those dollars. And so we started narrowing its focus. But one of the things we started noticing is a lot of the ideas that were coming hadn't really changed in 20 to 30 years. They were the sort of the same thing. And then as we looked at the numbers, which your listeners are more than familiar with, the decline in church attendance, the decline in baptisms, the decline in marriages, and frankly, probably the decline in school enrollment, mm-hmm. we started realizing, huh, well, these things that we're funding are not really moving the needle. What is the larger issue here? What we identified was, frankly, a lack of entrepreneurial mindset, the lack of creativity, the lack of innovation in the best use of the word. We can talk about what I mean by that. And how do we spur new methods, new approaches, new ideas for the new evangelization? The new evangelization, of course, was used by St. Pope John Paul II, new in ardor, new in expression, new in method. 
And so we're trying to find what are the new methods? What are the new strategies that we could utilize that are going to maybe reverse course or put us on a new trajectory to get the beautiful teachings and message of Jesus Christ and his church out to a new generation? So two years ago, we st- or two, three years ago, we started what we call the OSV Innovation Challenge, really to just spur and be a catalyst for new ideas in the church that we want to fund, that we want to walk beside in a company and help these young or not so young innovators with, with new napkin ideas and new approaches and try to bring them forth to help build up our church. We started something called the OSV Talks, which is like TED Talks mm-hmm. for Catholics, to just get new ideas and solutions out there. Um, and so that's the pivot that OSV has made in the Institute is to stop thinking about it as using these dollars for grant activity, but use these dollars for startup new approaches that we think are game-changing, disruptive ideas in the heart of the church, very faithful to church teaching that we're working on now to try to bring to light. You know, you use the word innovation. And again, some people, when they think of that word, they think of departure, discarding what is in, in the back, you know, kind of the modernist thinking of what's old is bad and we just have to make everything new. But right. it sounds to me like innovation and representation are are different in your mind and different in terms of the mission. Kind of let's dig into yes. that a little bit. Talk about innovation. Yeah. So, you know, Father, the, the term that comes to mind to me is that idea of ever, ever ancient, ever new, right? So innovation can be the new thing, but it could be something we've done before and it's being repurposed, something that worked in the past that we need to bring forward. So when we're talking about innovation, it's strategies that work. It's ideas that you want to execute on. Innovation is not invention, right? Innovation is that's a completely separate thing. And when we talk about innovation, we're not talking about uh, innovating church doctrine. We're not talking about, frankly, innovation in liturgy. We're talking about new methods, new strategies. And again, new can be old. Uh, it, mm. New can be something else that's working that we need to redeploy for this new context. And I'm very sensitive to this, Father, given the background you and I went through, right? It's, it's interesting. When I read, led my first Catholic Bible study, as a, coming at it from a Protestant background, I got the Bible out and I was used to writing in my Bible, highlighting my Bible, putting notes, circling, making connections. And I remember doing that with the kids and, and, and the kids were looking like, oh, this is sacrilegious right. yeah. to do that. I realized I better copy and give them the copy pages. But I think they thought I was like changing the Bible or something. That is not the innovation we're talking about. Changing doctrine, changing teachings. They're beautiful as they are. We want to stay in the heart of the church. I think John Paul II is a good model for that, right? No one's going to question where he is with his orthodoxy, but he was able to and willing to start World Youth Day. And he's willing to, to think about new travels and new pilgrimages and new things, and also to redeploy things that had worked in the past. That's sort of where we're at. I decided, though, to keep the word innovation because I think, I think that we have a whole lot of pastoral ministers that have degrees in catechesis, degrees in theology, but frankly, do not know how to deploy it, do not know how to execute and, and be an entrepreneur. I think we need to stop thinking. I think there's been a trend in the last 20 years to get the church to think more like a business, 
And I am suggesting, I think we need to think more like a startup, like an entrepreneur. And you, you see books that are going out there trying to re-get us to think like the early church in a certain sense. And that's the spirit that I'm, I'm you know, we, we have separation in our Catholic schools, as an example, between sort of the religious, the theological, and sort of the entrepreneurs and the innovators in the business. And I want to I want to bring those two together because I think it's going to be a better, more fruitful outcome for the church at large. I remember an advertisement that I saw one time for a bar of soap, and the person that was on the camera said, we couldn't improve the product, so we decided to improve the packaging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, that again, kind of comes to mind. New in order, new in expression, new in method. I mean, let's, let's get repassionate about our missionary uh, who we are as Catholics, how are we going to express it in a new generation? I mean, thinking about even things like Bishop Barron going to Google and things, right? It's the same teachings, but he's going to a new audience, maybe in expressing it in a way that resonates. And then what are the new strategies or programs? And, and on the methods, we've got to be willing to take a chance. We've got to be willing to fail fast. We've got to be willing to try some new things, find what's working. But we as church, I think, Think about it. Things take a lot longer, right? We, it's we. This is the way we do things. As I've been saying uh, in different circles, we do a lot, whole lot of things as the church, but no one can tell me if it's working. And all the data that would suggest is what we're currently doing is not working. But yet we keep doing it. We keep producing. And I mean, schools would be a prime example. Is it working? Is what we're doing in our Catholic schools and our Catholic education? What's the fruit of it? Are we measuring? Are, are the kids remaining Catholic? What is the outcomes of the families that they're, they're, they're having? And most of the data would suggest we need to pivot. We need to change. We need to innovate. We need to look at new models, new strategies for how we're going to educate our young people. Jason, what do you see on the horizon for the Institute? Are there new uh, program areas you're hoping to develop? Well, you would have thought you just read our new website because that was a perfect question. So the challenge is now going to have four what we're calling tracks. They're going to have four areas. One is this Catholic entrepreneur track. So maybe you're a, a Catholic who started a new business or product or service. The second is uh, we're calling the creative arts track. Um, maybe it's an art installation or a product you want to bring to market or a film or documentary. The third is uh, technology. You know, uh, maybe it's a new uh, system or social social media engagement. And then the the last is a parish school diocesan track. We really felt like we couldn't accelerate and help people all in one bucket. And so this year we've reserved. A uh, hundred thousand for each track, and then another hundred thousand prize as sort of a wild card. So I would encourage your listeners: you may have an idea, and it may be maybe there you're in a school and you want to apply. Well, get your idea in, and all comers bring all 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 ideas. They could be napkin ideas, they can be half baked ideas, or they could be more mature ideas. We we have even started what we're calling a napkin accelerator. That if you come in with just a simple idea, we'll help you get going faster on that idea as it progresses. But if you are a school, I would suggest innovation isn't, hey, we need more smart boards up in the classrooms, or we need to use more technology. Matter of fact, maybe technology is not what we need. (laughs) 
in the classroom. Think bolder, think bigger, think game-changing, disruptive ideas. Think of new business models, new approaches, new strategies. So that's sort of what we're looking at, right? Be bold and and bring them and bring them to our bring them to our attention. And but yeah, we have four new areas. We've started a napkin accelerator, and we're really looking at new content, new ways. So when you go through, it's not just applying for the challenge. We 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 want to form you as an entrepreneur, as an innovator. So there's spiritual formation, there's spiritual coaching. There's course entrepreneurial business coursework. There's different things that we want to help you and your entrepreneurial work. We want your idea to accelerate, but we also want your spiritual life to grow and develop. And we're doing all three of those when someone joins up. If you have, uh, let's say, a teacher from one of our Catholic schools that is listening to this uh, podcast today, and they're thinking about this from the standpoint of you know, this is where I want to go. I want to be an innovator, but they really yeah. don't know where to begin because maybe they're, they're in a school that is pretty much traditional at staying the course. And where would you say that a, an educator that would like to begin being an innovator, how do they begin that? I don't think we need to become an innovator. I would suggest you are likely already an innovator and that there's an innovator in each one of us. That's good. In, yeah. in the sense that we are cooperating with God, the creator. And, and I think there is a creative bone in everybody. And as I like to say, we all colored as a kid. We all enjoyed it. We all build with Legos. And most especially, I think if you're in the area of teaching, you are likely innovating in every day of that classroom. You are coming up with a new way for that light bulb to go off in that child. And I would suggest that if you really want to, if they really want to think about it, think about their teaching style, their teaching method, their teaching strategy. How long has it been refreshed? How long have you tried a new idea? How long have you tried a new approach? Or are you just reduplicating the lesson plan from the year before and the year before that? So just maybe start honing your innovative skills and, and challenging yourself in creativity. Try a new a way to maybe make that a method. I would also suggest take a risk, try something. Are you integrating Catholicism as an example? Maybe it's a pet peeve example of mine. Are you integrating Catholicism in history? Are you integrated in science? Is our faith just as another subject or is it integrated into all areas of the classroom? Bring me an idea on how you're going to do that. Not only you, but the fellow teachers in the school. That would be interesting. How would you innovate as a teacher or as a school? to say, our mission is no longer to serve kids. Our mission is to serve families. How does that change our approach, where we spend our money, our strategy, our business model, if the school is now the center for family life, if the school is now the center for evangelization? I just think this is what I'm trying to get to a little bit is, I think by and large, in my view, and it's just my view, from where I sit, I find Catholic education as a whole, when I talk about innovation, just wants to innovate around the edges. They don't want to go deep, go to the core of what I think needs to happen in education from a game-changing, disruptive approaches that are going to move the needle. And typically, I think it's, you know, this is the way we've always done it. We've done it this way for many years. Uh, this is the system in place. And I would encourage 
diocese level innovation to think about what are new strategies, business models, a hybrid models, a variety of other approaches that one could test and try, iterate and change that is going to propel and move Catholic education forward you know, over the next 30 years. We're not seeing those ideas. We've probably in the two to three years we've done this challenge. I think I could count maybe three ideas from Catholic schools, three who have even applied. And so to even Kyle, who's doing a lot with recruiting and other things, are we even recruiting, thinking about this as uh, we want the disruptors in our school? We want the game changers. And again, it's not we want disruptors that's going against church teaching or we want the disruptors that's going to say, but we want people that are more creative, right? And I think by and large, even our hiring practices, both at parish and schools, is not based on some of the skill sets that I think are required to move a school, a parish, a diocese forward. It's it, We're mainly hiring principals and others that are keeping the trains running on time and are good managers and aren't going to upset the apple cart. And for good reason, maybe we're hiring that way. But I think even our approach to who we should be looking for, how we you know, you're in, I'm on a soapbox, but just to give you guys a sense of what we're talking about, I think there's huge opportunities for innovation in Catholic education. And I would welcome and encourage people to get involved in our challenge and be a part of this process because we need, we desperately need your ideas and we're not seeing them currently. I think you're singing the Duke and Ultim song, don't you, Kyle? Very much so. I mean, that's the thread that ties so many of our schools together is this commitment to thinking outside the box in terms of how we're going to actualize the church's mission in this growing secular world uh, that we are finding ourselves in. And I love your example, Jason, of you know some of our schools have done that, have pivoted their mission statement from being solely student-centric to, well, actually, let's think about our school now is a center for families and their formation. Yeah. And boy, we've seen just the fruits of that when schools dive into to doing that. They need the liberty and license to do it. And this goes back to just some challenges we have in church bureaucracy. While we do have diocesan schools, a part of our, our network, many of them are, are independent Catholic schools who have the blessing of the ordinary to call, ourselves, call themselves Catholic, but have a whole set of leash and autonomy to take some of these risks in thinking about how they're going to bring their educational mission to more students and more families. We do need more bishops and superintendents and others to you know, respond to what OSV Institute is doing, I think, to, to kind of hear this call. We're seeing more diocesan membership in DIA, which is encouraging. So I think we're, we're beginning, but like you said, the the church as an institution has always been one slow to move and, and somewhat wisely so, right? Yeah. I mean, there's some prudence I mean, to, to I think that. there's a saying that something like when, when the church uh, gets there, hopefully it's all been vetted and it's right, right? And so there is some wisdom to that. I mean, we don't want to be reckless and just jump into everything. Sure. But hey, I would encourage any DIA folk, well, I'd love to see your application. So please get them in and, and maybe maybe eventually there's a DIA track. Uh, as part of this challenge. I think that would be a, a wonderful sort of track and idea and something that we should start collaborating and uh, mm -hmm. thinking and, and thinking about. 
um, but really would love to encourage those ideas. And I think this is sort of the beauty of OSB in a certain sense. We've been around a long time. I don't think anybody sort of questions the OSB orthodoxy and where they stand in terms of, of the church. It allows if one of your members or someone from school can win the challenge, right? And, sure. and has an o- award from OSB and some backing of OSB, maybe it makes it a little easier to embrace from a diocesan bishop level um, with some some backing and support from OSB. So would really That's encourage great. that. And it's one reason I want to go on your podcast, because I don't feel like I'm seeing the, the school ideas and would really love to see them and would invite you, Kyle and Father and others to not only that, you can be a part of judging and mentoring and helping us. And we can work together to bring these ideas to fruition and, and go from there. But it's, it's ripe for more entrepreneurship, greater innovation for the benefit of our kids, the next generations. I was thinking today about the word legacy and father, I guess I was thinking about it, thinking about it as a convert and thinking about sort of changing the trajectory of my family. Right. And my prayer and hope is, is that my kids grow up Catholic and that they embrace their faith and they pass it on to their kids and their kids pass it on to their kids. But as we know, our faith only lasts a generation. Every generation has to embrace it for themselves and how important that is for Catholic education. Unfortunately, we've just assumed, however, if you go through these steps in the Catholic context and the Catholic world and go through the schools, that they come out the back end faithful Catholics. We know that's not true and not happening. We have to evangelize in the, uh, and before we sacramentalize, I guess, as Father Ricardo says it. And my point is, we've got to work as the Institute. You guys are doing this work very well to help get into the space of Catholic education, to make it what it needs to be so that my great, great grandkids uh, have, the, have this beautiful faith that I discovered many years ago. Jason, my last question revolves around the pandemic, particularly your experience, you know, with, with COVID. Uh, you know, we're coming up on two years of of this pandemic, and yeah. I knew you before you had your brush with death as a consequence mm-hmm. of of COVID. And you know, would love just a brief reflection from you on on how that altered your outlook personally and professionally, facing death as closely as you did as a result of COVID. Yeah, Kyle. So for those that aren't aware, November of 2021, I got COVID and was one of those bad cases that you hear about on television and radio. So I was taken to the hospital by squad and then I was sedated and incubated and, and I was sedated and incubated, intubated rather for uh, seven weeks. So I was put under for two weeks. I was woken back up when I was woke, when I, when they woke me back up, I then got pneumonia and septus. They put me back under, said he's worse than he was before. My kidneys started shutting down. We got to a point where, you know, if they were to move my leg or move my arm, my oxygen would drop so much that they had to stop moving my limbs. So when I did wake up after seven weeks, I couldn't talk because I had a trach in. I couldn't walk. I couldn't move my arms. I couldn't swallow. And yeah, it was quite the ordeal. And at one point during it, my wife who was told we're going to take you off these machines. They're going to, there's nothing more we can do for him. He's likely not going to make it. Said these COVID protocols should no longer apply. The end of life protocols should. She got in to see me, gave me a kiss and, and was there. But then she started a novena 
to St. Jude. And that's actually St. Jude in the background. It does look like Jesus, but that's St. Jude. After uh, many people started saying that novena, I, my life was spared. And I started every day of that novena, made steady progress to healing. Uh, when I talked to the doctors, I asked them, I said, um, now, was there anything medically that you did? And they said, no, we gave you normal treatment. We can't explain how you recovered. And a matter of fact, they said, what we weren't sure is if you did recover, whether you would have any functioning in terms of brain and speech and, and walking and physical. And so they said, just what, I'm, what you're seeing now, they are surprised by. There was lots of lessons to be learned from all this. I'll just tell you one quick story, if I may. When I was taken to the hospital, I thought I was going in for a breathing treatment and going to be sent home. Um, they said, we're going to, you're really bad. Matter of fact, by the way, when the priest came to anoint me, they took him aside and said, Father, our next call to you will be of his death. This is one of the worst cases we've ever seen. Uh, my lungs had were having huge, uh, lots of problems. I had to text my, I had to message my wife and say, this is happening. I said to her, instead of saying, you're the love of my life and I love you. And I said, here's where the life insurance is located and here's how the bills get paid. And, and what she said to me, she said, um, she said, I need you, Jason, to text each one of your five kids a goodbye message so that someday they can read and get the last message from their father. So I have about 15 minutes before they're putting me under. And I have a, I'm, at this point, I'm with a mask and I probably have some medicine that's making me a little loopy. But I'm now sitting there thinking about my nine-year-old daughter and someday all the things I wish I would have said. But what message do I want to give to her that she's going to read on her wedding day? And my son, what am I going to say to him about thinking about his vocation in life? And what do I say to my four-year-old? And in 15 minutes, I am now texting everybody I love goodbye. You know what I'm not thinking about? My work, my job, innovating these ideas. I'm thinking about those kids. I'm thinking about my family and I'm thinking about every, you know, so what did I learn? I learned about what is important in life. I learned about priorities in life. And now that I have a second chance, I hope to God I use it well and not use it well by making big splashes like being on the DIA podcast, but with those five kids and my vocation as dad and husband and father and and living that out well and getting them to heaven and helping them to become saints. And I would encourage your listeners to think about if I give you 15 minutes, who do you text and what do you say? And I think, you know, as we think about these things, for me, a lot of the lily, little silly trivial stuff don't matter. And we get in a lot of debates and discussions. And, and as church, we're really good at it, right? We really get into a lot of silly conversations. For me, this was a focusing experience that gives me a tremendous amount of urgency to say, we got to bring people to Jesus Christ, and we've got to bring him to this beautiful, amazing church. We've got to be about saving souls, and we've got to do it in, in the areas that God has given us. And even when I talk about innovation, I'm, not ta I'm talking about how are you going to bring these, the message of Jesus Christ to your neighbor? To your, to your kids, to your wife, 
What are the new approaches you need to do that? Because there's an evangelizing innovator entrepreneur in each one of us. And I think we're called to it. And this solidified for me with the last remaining breaths that I have given the second chance of this intercession of many and a clear course of St. Jude that I, I want to do that. And I'm hopeful that God uses me well in the, in the time left that I have. So that's just a little bit. And there's a lot more lessons as I had to wake up and learn how to walk again and talk again and do all of that. And, um, and we can talk about more of that for a later day, but it's the lesson that I, I want to leave, especially with those educators, you have precious cargo in your midst in those classrooms. You are those parents' eyes and ears and formators to bring them. And I'm so grateful for you and how important role that you play in their lives. And, uh, and I'm grateful for you and, and thankful for that you're doing it because we need help and, and you're part of you know, God's plan and how they're, they're going to be utilized. Great. Thank you for sharing that, Jason. Yeah, Jason, that was powerful. And in fact, I was, I was reflecting on this the other day. I was doing a funeral at the parish. I was sharing with the folks that in my some 40 years of ministry, I've never heard anybody at the end of their life say, I wish I worked harder, wish I'd made more money. Family, friends, and faith were the, the three big things. And I think that that's a sobering thought for us as we look at the mission of education. Whatever we can do to help prepare people for life, we also need to help them to be prepared for, for eternity. That's really, really powerful. Yeah, there's a, there's a reason why the church in many retreats and stuff will focus on the last things. And it does focus us, right? When you think of, you have that sort of internal perspective. Uh, and so we encourage the teachers to give that some thought in terms of the work they're doing, but also maybe in whatever ways appropriate and age appropriate to get the young people to think of that because they're, they're certainly living day by day and moment by moment, but are they, are they thinking about eternity? And uh, we probably likely need to do a better job of that as, as church as a whole. And I, Amen. I did not anticipate having to learn it the hard way, but certainly I did. Well, it's a, it's a lesson for us all and something that we can take from you as a sobering, as I said, sobering thought and a, and a perspective. Thank you for sharing and being very transparent on that. And, uh, we do want to thank our, our guest, Jason Shanks, for being with us today. Jason, thank you for being on Follow to Lead and giving us so many great insights today. Yeah, it was a pleasure, guys. Thanks so much. And, uh, I, you know, let's do it again. And if you want to get more information on the OSV Institute, Jason, where should they go? Well, we got a lot of different places you can go. You can simply go to osvinstitute.com. Uh, if you're interested in the challenge, you can also go to OSV challenge.com. And if you're interested in some inspirational, inspiring talks, you can also go to osvtalks.com and there's an OSV Talks podcast as well. And you can uh, subscribe as a member to those too, can't you? That uh, information about them. I love your, your talks. I, I think calling them TED Talks for Catholics is a great way to do it, but the, the content is just fantastic and a great you, variety Father. as well. Thank you, Father. Yeah, they, we, uh, people work really hard behind the scenes, and we've got great talent, great speakers. Uh, coming up in February, we'll have another 24 released of the wow. talks, and we're going to release them all at once, and you can go to the website and get them all at the same time. So uh, look forward to that. 
Well, when you think about binging like on Netflix, instead go to OSV Talks. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Get some good stuff there. Yeah. Well, uh, for our, our audience, if you haven't done it already, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and to leave a comment uh, to encourage us toward our future programs. And we also do want to thank our intern, Alex Shire, for assisting in the production of this podcast. May Almighty God bless you. We'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Follow to Lead, a production of the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative. To learn more about finding your own path in your journey of faith, or for more information on what we discussed in today's episode, you are invited to follow us on social media and visit us on the web at diaschools.org. To provide a one-time donation or monthly pledge, please visit our website. Your gift will aid us in providing up-to-date information, additional resources, and other support on how to take Catholic education to a higher level. We look forward to helping you follow God's call to lead others to God right here on Follow to Lead.